HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Welcome to Heritage Radio Network on Tour. I'm Kat Johnson, and today we're broadcasting from On the Rise 3, the International Symposium on Bread at Johnson and Wales University in Charlotte, North Carolina. Today's coverage is brought to you by Charlotte Scott a lot and supported in part by the Julia Child Foundation for Gastronomy and the Culinary Arts. Our first interview today is with the one and only Peter Reinhardt, who is responsible for making the International Symposium on Bread happen for three years in a row. So welcome, Peter, and congratulations. Thank you, Kat. It's really cool to be back with you. And welcome back to Charlotte. This is your third year at our symposium. And we love being here. Um, So tell us a little bit about how the symposium has evolved from year one to two to three. Yeah, we've had a really interesting learning curve. First of all, the first year was kind of like a TED conference. We had 10 really good speakers. All those those presentations are now archived on our YouTube channel so people can actually see them by going to uh, uh, on the rise bread symposium and then you know it'll lead you to the to their to the YouTube uh, videos but we got 10 great presentations on all aspects of the future of bread which is our theme and um, there were certain ideas that emerged that kind of re-emerged and seemed to be the key takeaways and the second year we repeated that format and we had 10 more so on our on our youtube channel we have about 20 presentations so it's turning into quite an archive of of thought leadership on this idea of the future of bread whether it's in the history the technology the science the chemistry we covered all the different categories we decided that we had so many good takeaway ideas from that that we needed to actually make some bread we did. We tried a little workshop last year at the end. It was a, a test run, and it was like huge success. And we sold that out as a separate event, and people loved it. So we decided to make this year's symposium all about hands-on. So we've only had one presentation, which will in a week or two go on the YouTube channel as well as our keynote on microbiology, on on finding which bacteria and yeast cr- cause which flavors in breads. And one of the workshops that we have now, we have three workshops in this year's symposium with about 20 to 25 people in each workshop where they're pushing the envelope in these three categories. Sourdough, which again, we, we refer to sourdough as uh, in, in terms of the future of bread, that the future of bread is really found in its past since sourdough really is the ancient way of doing it. But it's still opening up new frontiers of flavor development and exploration. So they're working with five or six different sourdough starters from around the world that have been uh, cultivated and kept by 
uh, two places, the uh, Sourdough Library in by Piratos in uh, St. Vith, the Belgium. And then there's also some that are being cultivated and, uh, well, they're being sent to and then kept alive at North Carolina State in their program. So we've got five or six of those, plus a uh, Flemish daisel bread. And they're making the same recipe, but with different starters. And then the class is going to analyze those flavors and then from what they learn from those, make some original breads, maybe with a hybrid of different starters or to see which ones kind of lead where. And so it's all about sourdough. And then the second workshop is called Good Bread is Good for You. And it's all about the future of bread again, because the future of bread is still our theme. Um, We think that it's time to flip the script on bread as the enemy of the people, as you know, we, we hear it out there. I get asked all the time by media, is bread dead now? You know, and I go, no, it's been around 6,000 years. It's not going away. But the challenge for bakers is, is to show why it shouldn't go away. And we think that there is a way uh, to make bread that doesn't check off the, the scary boxes of, you know, gut health, and all, but can actually be good for gut health. And we think the key to that is sprouted grain. And so we've got experts on the sprouted grain aspect, and we presented that last year. Now this year we're making breads using a combination of sprouted wheats and other grains that are um, wet mash that are pulped into like a, you know, like a wet uh, product, and then also sprouted grains that are dried and milled into flour. So they're playing with all different combinations of that. And then the third category is ancient grain, local grain, heritage, heirloom, uh, which is, again, another growing category. A few years ago, it was just a blip on the screen, a few little artisan bakers and mills. Uh, My subtitle for that one is is the the Farmer-Miller-Baker Coalition. So what's happening is in order for local grains to be used and find a market and for farmers to be willing to grow them, they have to have somebody who's willing to mill them. And they have to have bakers who are willing to deal with the eccentricities of local grain because it can change from year to year to year. And it's not like commercial flour where you can just count on the same performance. So we have some great bakers and millers in that workshop, uh, some wonderful flowers from, that are some, some of which came from Anson Mills that have been uh, cultivated from grain that was almost extinct and is now being brought into play. Some local, uh, locally grown wheat and, um, and then made and milled from local mills and bakers that know how to use it or are going to help the people that are in that workshop learn how to adjust. And they're also going to be pushing the envelope to make some breads that have never been made before. That's a long answer to a quick question, but that's the summary of what we're doing today. And then tomorrow at the end of the symposium, we're going to get all the breads into one room, get all the workshops together, and we're going to have show and tell and sharing sessions where each group's going to share what the takeaways were for them. And then next year, we're going to go back to the academic model where we have 10 presentations. I, mean, I think we're going to kick it back and forth every year between these two approaches, hands-on one year, academic the other. And the ideas from next year's symposium will become the basis for the next hands-on one. I love it. So one of the things you were telling me earlier, we were shooting some Instagram videos, is that you want the outcome of the symposium to kind of start some trends, um, for lack of a better word, to kind of help dictate what's going to be the future of bread. So I have a question. In the sourdough workshop, when they're going to be making the same recipe with different sourdoughs, has anything like that really been done before where we've taken the exact same recipe, we've had a, a variety of starters in the same room, and we've been able to actually taste, focus in on taste the nuance of the starter? 
Well, I don't know if they're, if they're I'm sure in R&D labs they've, you know, they've done stuff like that like at Puratus where they are creating, you know, commercial sourdough starters so to speak by analyzing these various strains. It's probably done but not in a workshop format. Uh, so I think this is kind of the first time, and it's also like the first time I think that anyone's had a chance to work with more than just their own starter. I mean, every bakery has a starter that they love that's indigenous to their region and their system of making bread. But um, the assumption's always been that our local starter is the best, but maybe it isn't, and maybe there are other things. We, For instance, we heard in the keynote last night that there are only certain bac- – there's hundreds and hundreds of wild bacteria and yeast that create the flavors, but there's certain ones that always show up and others that just show up in certain regions. And there's some, for instance, what we call Saccharomyces cerevisiae, which is the, the um, technical name for commercial yeast, which we think of as a sort of like – not sourdough yeast, but regular yeast, that exists also as a wild yeast. And it's in every starter. It's the most predominant wild yeast there is. It's just more tolerant of acids and sour than the commercial version, which is more like a hothouse flour. So we know that that yeast is out there. But then there's the famous one, San Fran- uh, Lactobacillus San Franciscans. And it turns out that that's not unique to only San Francisco. It exists all over the world. But then there's another yeast, another uh, uh, bacteria, I'm sorry, that we heard about. And I can't remember the name of it now, that also exists in certain parts of the world that is very similar to the San Francisco one. And they compete for the same foods, for, for maltose. And so you, in a starter, you will find one or the other, but not both. And it's, one of the, it's the only other situation where there's two that can't coexist. I wanted to ask the, uh, the, the sp- our, our presenter, Erin McKenney, well, which one wins? And so I asked her afterwards, well, which, which bacteria wins when they go to battle? And she says it really depends on the location and which one is in more abundance because basically the, whoever owns the turf wins and the other guy is like the Jets and the Sharks. One of them goes away and one stays. So it's, a, it's like there's this incredible like psychodrama going on. It's in a game dough. of risk going on in your <laughs> it's starter. A, it's a game of thrones, I think. Oh, you know? yeah, it is. So, and, game and, of scones. So the question is, who's the dragon queen? Yeah, game yeah. of scones. I like that. <laughs> um, that's exciting. I think it would just be really cool to – Maybe one day you'll walk into a bakery and they'll have like different sourdoughs you can try, yes. like side by side, yes. like, almost like a wine tasting. But we with think bread. that that's going to happen, and that's there are actually cool. some courses being developed for what we call bread sommeliers, I who love can it. teach people how to identify. And I think again, as these starters get cultivated, they can be uh, they can actually be dried and saved and recreated in different parts of the world. So you could have in one bakery a number of different starters. Uh, and even in most bakeries that, that have like rye starters and wheat starters, they do have different characteristics. But to have one from Australia or from the Ukraine or whatever, uh, all being made in the same bakery is a possibility now. And so I think it's another frontier. We were always looking for what the next frontier is. That's going to be one of them. Exciting. Um, can we talk a little bit about some of the books that you've written? Specifically, I had my eye on the the pan pizza the new book yeah Yeah. thank you yeah i'm excited about that one it's called perfect pan pizza and it's basically detroit style pizza which is i call that deep pan pizza to differentiate it from deep dish pizza which is like chicago style which is more of a 
a pastry crust and a casserole type pizza. It's a, in Italy, they may call it pizza rustica, but I don't have that in this book. I have, I'm focusing on the ones that have a more traditional pizza dough, uh, but these are baked in pans. So Sicilian style, Roman style, focaccia, these are all traditional pan pizzas. And what we call Detroit pizza is really a variation of a focaccia, but it's becoming the hot style right now, whether it's Emmy Squared in New York or other places that are doing Detroit style pizzas. There's something compelling about it, and I think, I mean, Pizzeria Sofia in in Manhattan is doing a great version. They do a 12-hour rise. And so, um, uh, because at the pizza competitions, I'm seeing more and more competitors entering in that category, I got fascinated with it, and I worked with a restaurant in Texas that wanted to add a Detroit-style pizza to their menu, and... uh, but they wanted it to be different and better than everybody else's. And so we had to come up with something to kind of even up the game of a really good style of pizza. And we came up with a method. that, And I feel like I'm pioneering in this book a new method of of doing the dough because, let's face it, 90% of the, of the pizza is in the crust. It's not – the toppings are a bonus. Um, and it's all about the crust. And so there's a technique in there where we show how to actually embed some of the cheese in the dough as it rises – so that instead of putting all the cheese on top, some of the dough is getting baked in the dough. And no pizzeria I know of is doing it this way. Um, and it's about a four to five hour final rise because it's in a pan. And then be, right before you bake it, you add the rest of the cheese and any other toppings that you're going to put on it. And then you bake it. And I'm telling you, when it comes out of the oven, it is like, I don't know, it's like liquid gold. It, first of all, the bottom gets this great crunchy, crackly, buttery toast kind of quality. It's like the best toast you ever had. The side edges, which are about an inch thick, get this little cheese crust from the cheese that melts over the edge and is captured by the pan, and it creates what they call a frico, a little cheese crisp around the edge. And then you got all the cheese on top and everything else. And But the dough in the center, instead of being bready, because when it comes out of the pan, it looks like a thick pizza, but it doesn't taste bready. It tastes like custard. It's just so... I don't know. I got to tell you, I'm, I haven't been as excited about a, a product in years as I am about this. I think it's going to change the landscape of pan pizza, this method. I, I believe it. I believe it will as people start to adopt it. And, uh, and so I can't wait for the people who have the book to try it and get back to me and let me know if it lives up to the billing because I hate overhyping something. But so far, everybody I've made it for uh, flips out. We did one. We made one live on, on a radio show, on an NPR show locally. And uh, I had this little portable oven uh, that I brought into the studio, and we baked the pizza. The host had never is loves pizza, but had never had a pizza like this. And and we made him taste it on the air, and the the viewers couldn't see it, but his eyes got about as big as saucers, and he said, "Oh my god, I've never had a pizza like that." And it was like that for me was like solid gold, you know. So that's the were the effect that I'm, I'm looking for people to be totally wowed by this, and I think that we're hoping that we get them there. And is it true that? Pan pizza seems like it's a little bit more accessible style for home cooks. Yes, too. yes, exactly. Because you don't need special equipment. You can use you could use a brownie pan or a cake pan. It can be round. It doesn't have to be square. And you can bake it in a regular home oven. It only takes an oven that can go up to four seventy five or five hundred, depending on the oven. Uh, is all you need that kind of heat to make it work. And it takes about fifteen to seventeen minutes to bake. So, but the, but it's a technique, and the part of it is a wet, sticky dough which in the book we show how to work with that without becoming all sticky up with the dough, and, um, and a long fermentation, an overnight cold fermentation, and then a long final rise. So there's a few steps that make the difference, but those are the, the, the little nuances that t- 
take it from being good into something memorable. And then, and then when you you look at a lot of cooking and a lot of products, it, there's always some little minor little little tweak that makes the difference between good and great. And so a lot, all my books really explore that subject is what is the difference between good and great. And when it comes to pizza, I define great as being memorable. So what makes a pizza memorable and why are there a handful of pizzerias that are doing memorable pizza and why there's 99% of the pizza pizzerias that are doing good pizza but not memorable pizza? So what's that difference? It's not because of the ingredients. It's because of something else that they bring to it. And some of it's technique and craft. Some of it is understanding time and fermentation. And some of it is just their passion and their love. The uh, Chris Bianco, the great pizza, pizza maker from Phoenix, said that I can teach people my tricks, but I can't teach them to care as much as I care. And he says, and that's why my pizzas are, you know, have broken from the package because I'm the one who's making them. That was his quote. And, and he no longer does make them. He has taught people. He's found people who care. And we've seen across the country people emerging who care at the same level as Chris Bianco. And now we're seeing great pizzas showing up everywhere. So this is, And that's what I try to explore in my books. And I think that this book is an outcome of some of that exploration. I, I explore a lot of that on my website, pizzaquest.com, where we have videos and interviews and all sorts of stuff. It's it's really like pizza is a metaphor for me, and bread is a metaphor for something else, and it's the the search for a meaningful life, and a search for fulfillment, and and a search for the for that experience of of excellence and greatness, and and how that can change your life. And it's all that's all sort of between the lines because it's also about pizza, and 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 we have to have fun with the pizza in order to so we sort of start at that level of pizza, and then underneath at at three or four levels of meaning, it gets more and more like you know mystical <laughs> that's awesome um when the next book comes out if when the next book comes out what uh what do you think the subject will be do you have well, anything I, yeah percolating? i have an idea percolating in fact i'm working on my book proposal right now so i can't say too much about it except that it will be a continuation of this exploration of of that difference between good and great uh, and again, how do you define great? Memorable is just one way of defining great. But uh, I want to kind of go deeper into that. Uh, but I haven't figured out exactly. I mean, I, there will always be an element of bread and pizza in it. Uh, but there are other, certainly many other things that, you know, uh, can be metaphors or, or uh, outcomes of greatness. You know, whether it's a roast chicken, it could be any number of things that, that can t- people can taste it and go, oh, my God, I never knew it could be this good. If somebody's ever had a roast chicken at the Zuni Cafe in in San Francisco, as an example, um, they'd leave there and their benchmark for what a roast chicken can be has been changed forever. That's what I want to get into. It's not, so go beyond pizza and see what are some other areas where there is this other level of amazement. Well, hot tip. We're going beyond beyond pizza and bread. So next time I see you, we'll probably have that further along in the process. I and love it. Maybe in, you know, it usually takes about two years from start to finish for a book to get out there. So two years from now, hopefully we'll have that one on the shelves. Who knows? That um, actually seems pretty fast for a book. Like you got this down to a science. Well, some books take me three years. Yeah. Some take two. This pizza book, I was able to, because I had the idea in my head when I pitched it to my publisher uh, and they said, we love the idea, but can you turn it around more quickly than usual? Uh, we need it in seven months. Can you do it? that fast and I said you know what I think I can because I have it all written in my head and sure enough I, I beat the deadline and the book you know we got it out a little faster and it's out there now it came out three weeks ago wow. and you know what it's it's selling I, I, was, I wasn't sure if it would be if it would because pizza books historically are just average sellers 
this pizza book has the potential. There's some buds going with the book that I wasn't expecting, that I'm thrilled about, but I, we didn't know it would happen. But we've touched a nerve with this one, and I think it's something that's partly the fact that pan pizza is very hot right now, and also I think it's about these techniques. And it's doable for a home cook. And it's doable. Absolutely. Yeah, that's yeah. that's what made me excited yeah, about it. Yeah, exactly. I'm, I can take that book home and know I can cook out of it. And and I think that for me, as I've examined kind of what it is about my writing, what why what are my books about and why do they work, it's because I think I take I can take some complex ideas that maybe would would initially seem like they're only for the people that are totally geeks about that subject and and make them attainable for the average person to follow. That's just something I'm I just by teaching in, in culinary schools I've learned how to do, and so uh, so taking those those ideas and and distilling them down for the everyday cook. Because, uh, you know, they're the ones that we're trying, you know, we want to feed the masses. We, you know, we don't want to just feed the elite. They say if you feed the elite, you eat with the masses. But if you feed the masses, you eat with the elite. And that's an old saying that, you know, that the chefs have heard. Uh, and I think it's true with books. You want to really write books that everybody can enjoy and not just people who are serious, you know, hardcore dedicated cooks. Yeah. Um, well, are there any final thoughts about the symposium this year? Anything you're looking forward to over the next couple of days? Well, we're in the middle of it now, so yeah. I'm really looking forward to tomorrow's outcomes because right now they're shaping their doughs. Most of the doughs will be held overnight in cold fermentation, and they'll be baked tomorrow. There might be a few loaves coming out of the oven as we wrap up here, and we'll see. But most of the breads will be tomorrow, and then at our show-and-tell session at the end of the symposium, uh, we'll be having actually a lot of those breads for lunch tomorrow. One of our sponsors is Big Green Egg, and and we have uh, a local chef is is uh, smoking briskets on the Big Green Egg. So we're going to have smoked brisket on our breads tomorrow for lunch. So I'm looking forward to lunch for sure tomorrow, and uh, and then also to see all the different kinds of breads that come out of these three workshops. So that will be you know our big. Disclosure, and we're filming a lot of it. A lot of it will be on video, so we we're not going to film them like like uh, thirty minute videos. They'll be like highlight reels that will capture some of the the uh, you know maybe the key moments of the symposium. That'll go on our YouTube channel in a few months. Hopefully, we're going to get some nice time lapses of some rises. Oh, I don't know. If I'll it, have to talk to. I'm Frazier not sure if the ca- if, if you know Fraser, the cameraman. Yeah. So if he's uh, patient, I don't know if he can set a camera in place and you know wait. Leave it overnight. Yeah, that's a good idea. Why not? Well, talk to him. I'm I counting will. on you to get that idea. I'll relay the message. That would be awesome. Um, well, we are patiently waiting, but we're so excited to try some of these breads from the workshops. Great. Well, I'm so glad you came again, and uh, we'll go explore in a few minutes and see what's what's rising over there. Yeah, we got to make a round real quick through, Definitely. The, through the classrooms. Um, okay. Well, thank you, Peter thank Reinhardt, you, for joining us. Thank you for having us again for year three. Um, I quickly want to thank, once again, Charlotte's Got a Lot and Julia Child Foundation for, the, for Gastronomy and the Culinary Arts for helping us get town to Charlotte for the International Symposium on Bread. I'm Kat Johnson. Thanks for listening. Thank you.